The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. We're thankful uh, for the words. And, you know, every time, every now and then you come to a specific passage and you get so excited about it, you get tongue-tied in your mind. And uh, I find that to be something that uh, happens quite frequently. But, uh, but this is one of those passages this morning when Paul tries to lay down before us the absolute amazing glory of Jesus Christ. And he will bring it in and out of comparison with, with Satan. And we saw some of that last week. But let's go ahead and uh, we'll have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you once again for your amazing word, your amazing grace. And I just pray that you would continue to keep our minds focused where you want them. That you would be glorified. and We'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Philippians chapter 2, if you're not there yet, you can turn there with me. Um, Beginning in verse 5, verse 5 through 11. And Paul just says very clearly, have this mind among yourselves. Like the old King James, it says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself before, or humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful words. On the other side, we see what was running through Satan's mind. In Isaiah, there are two verses, we touched on them last week a little bit in chapter 14, that tell of the thoughts that entered Lucifer's head at the moment when he first rebelled against God. And Isaiah writes in uh, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. In the far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So you see the contrast, the stirring contrast we have here. Where on one hand, Satan wants to make himself everything. And Jesus wants to make himself nothing. For you and me. 
Now, every verb and every image in this passage points to Satan's desire to rise to the pinnacle of God's universe. So in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, contains the New Testament counterpart to Satan's words in Isaiah. These verses picture the descent of the Lord Jesus Christ from the highest positions in the universe down to his death on the cross. And they carry the mind of the reader up again to see him seated once more at the throne of glory before which every knee shall bow. I will go up, 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 said Satan. You will be cast down to hell, God answered. I will go down to the cross, said Jesus. Now you will be given a name that is above every name, said God, our Heavenly Father. So this passage is among the most glorious sections in all the New Testament. In these, in these few verses, we see the great sweep of Christ's life from eternity past to eternity future, and we are admitted into the breathtaking purpose of God in human salvation. And recall that over the last couple of weeks, what we've tried to do is to help each one of us as Christians understand our place in Christianity. Our role is to mimic Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's whole existence is the giving away of himself for the glory of God the Father. Satan, on the other hand, wanted everything for himself, for his own glory. And you know, far too often, it's easy for us to get swept up in the things of this world and the things that we want. And we will find ways to justify getting what I want for my happiness, my joy, and probably not put the thought into what Christ wants of me. So this passage is a very strong passage in that area. So let's look, first of all, at the early truth. The early truth. These verses are remarkable from the point of view of the early church history. And they must be considered briefly in this context. The Apostle Paul is talking about a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who had lived only a generation earlier in Jerusalem. He's stating tremendous things about him. Yet he says these things in such a way that we know he is uh, neither inventing doctrine nor arguing for a hotly contested position, but merely presenting what he knew to be the accepted teaching of the Christian church of that day. Now, Suppose someone said about a man who had lived in 1988 that it would be preposterous to believe these kind of things if they were said. Yet Paul writes these things as if everyone, the early Christian church, knew them to be true beyond question. One of the great English commentators on this book of Philippians has written, quote, 
we have here a chain of assertions about our Lord Jesus Christ made within some 30 years of his death at Jerusalem, made in the open day of public Christian conversation, and make every reader must feel this now, not in the least in the manner of controversy, of assertion against difficulties and, and details, but in the tone of a settled, common, and most living certainty, end of quote. In other words, these are true facts. These are true assertions. So these assertions give us, on the one hand, the fullest possible assurance that he is man, man in nature, in uh, circumstances and experience, and particularly in the sphere of relation to God the Father. But they also assure us in precisely the same tone and in a way that is equally vital to the argument at hand that he is genuinely divine as he is genuinely human. So the verses bring us near to the bedrock of the early Christian faith and preaching. They contain most of the distinctive articles of the Christian creed. So here they are. They teach the the divinity of Christ, his pre-existence, his equality with God the Father, his incarnation and true uh, humanity, his voluntary death on the cross, the certainty of his ultimate triumph over evil, and the preeminence of his reign. That's the Christ you and I worship. That is the God who has committed to take care of us. This is the God who is committed to walk with us every step of the way. This is the God who said that not only did he love us, but he would never leave us or forsake us. So the history of theology is full of examples. There were often advances in the direction of a fuller understanding of their significance, but the doctrines themselves were always known. Christianity is Christ, this Christ, and these things were believed about him right from the beginning. So let's notice then the preeminence of Jesus. The first view we have of Jesus is in reference to his preeminence. Paul says that before the incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God and was God's equal. These words do not mean that God has a material form, but only that Jesus Christ possesses all of God's attributes. And of course, that is one of the great powerful things of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One God in three essence. One God in three persons. And so we know Jesus to be God. They mean that he is God. Is God omniscient? So is Jesus. Is God all-powerful? So is Jesus. 
Is God the creator, the redeemer, the truth, the way, the life, the past, the present, the future? So is Jesus. Paul's phrase, being in the very nature God, is a deliberate claim of his divinity. And here Paul's words soar to the same height to which John in the magnificent prologue to his gospel, writes in John 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is our God. Now, do we live our lives as if he is our God? Do we live our lives and walk each day in the reality that this is our God? The same preeminence was taught by Jesus himself when he referred in his prayer in John 17 verse 5. I love that Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Read that verse again. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, isn't that just incredible? Before any creation ever was, God the Father and God the Son were equal in glory. And this is what he's praying back to the Father now. So this is Christ's past glory. It is the great preeminence that gives all value to the uh, citation of Christ's life as the ultimate pattern of human and self-sacrifice. And so, naturally now, this brings us to his condescension. Because the second view of Jesus is his condescension. Now think about that. Christ had been above all humans, above all angels, yet he became lower than both in love for humans and in obedience to the Heavenly Father. That's, that's an amazing choice, truth. That's bedrock theology. That he was above all humans and above all angels, yet because of his love, he became lower. Imagine that. Lower for you and I. Even Paul, who had suffered beatings and shipwrecks and tortures and stonings, would never have had to go through ex- extremes that Jesus suffered. Paul was a Roman citizen and was exempt from crucifixion. There was no depth to which Jesus would not go for you and I. Now we can imagine the scene that must have taken place in heaven. Just, just, Just think about this. On the eve of Christ's birth, the angels, they don't know everything. 
They don't have a full understanding of everything. God is omniscience, but the angels are not. And the Bible tells us that there are aspects of salvation that the angels don't understand, but long to look into. Consider 1 Peter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So, how is he going to come into the world? And he comes as a baby in his mother's arms? I mean, the angels must have been going crazy about this. And you got to imagine, therefore, that, that something like rumors of Christ's uh, descent to earth had been contemplated. The form in which Christ would enter human history would be, would he appear in a blaze of light bursting into the night sky of the Palestinian countryside, dazzling all who beheld him? Perhaps he would appear as a mighty general marching into the uh, campaign like Rome, like Caesar did through Rome when he crossed the Rubicon. But what is this? <laughs> there is no display of glory. There's no pomp. No marching of the feet of the heavenly legions. Instead, Christ lays his robes aside. The glory that was his from eternity. Christ so loved you and I that the only one in existence who has the right to come roaring into this earth laid everything aside and came as a humble servant to give his life At this display of the divine condescension, the angels are amazed. And they burst into such a crescendo of song that the shepherds hear them on the hills of Bethlehem. You can almost imagine what that must have been like. The crescendo in heaven, as well as spreading the earth. He's here. The Savior is here, but in a very quiet, surrendered way. So it helps us to see, therefore, the glory of the throne. The final picture that we have is Jesus again on the throne of heaven. Now, four times in his ministry, Jesus spoke on this text. Matthew 18, 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be hum uh, humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So are you ready to let God have all the glory? Are you ready to allow God to take your life 
for his glory and for his purpose. Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then finally, Luke 18, 14. I tell you this, I tell you this, man went down to his, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you understand what that is saying? What that is saying is that to whatever you and I struggle with in life, when we give it to him, he's exalted. But when we try to do it ourselves and take everything to ourselves, we wind up exalting ourselves. And it is that absolute surrender that Christ is able to work through. That's when we die to ourself and allow him to live through us. Now the first half of each of the clauses in the sentences has an active verb. The individual must humble himself rather than exalt himself. The second half of each clause has a passive verb. Will be humbled and will be exalted. So the individual will be exalted by God. And we find the same thing in the book of Philippians. Everything that is said in the first four verses of Philippians 2 has Jesus himself as the subject. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He became obedient. Now, how does the God of the universe become obedient? When you begin to understand the obedience of a sovereign God, you begin to understand the total package of his love and compassion for us. How he's willing to lay aside all things for us. The big question comes down is, what are we willing to lay aside? Are we willing to say to Christ, my life is yours. You do with it as you see fit. The second half of the passage has God as the subject. And Jesus is passive. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 10. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. How glorious that Jesus shall reign and that God the Father will see to it. You see, the end of the book we know, right? We know that Jesus will rule and reign. We know that he is sovereign. We know that the amazing thing about him is that he is offering us free grace to love him and worship him and be a part of what he's doing. The amazing question is, each one of us, no matter what you're dealing with, am I willing to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done?
in whatever way. The thought is a solemn thought, for it embraces all mankind. You will see him and bow before him. That's guaranteed. Will it be in love and adoration as you fall gratefully before the one who loved you and died for you? Or will it be by compulsion as you are forced to your knees by the angels, moments before you are removed from his presence forever? But here's the great joy, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you need rest this morning? Do you need help this morning? Do you need a release from the weight you're carrying? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. That is an exact promise from the God himself. And that is offered to each one of us. He is your Savior who loves you and gave himself for you. Today is still the day of his grace. Today is the day of salvation. You don't have to walk out of here this morning wondering, am I saved? Can I be a Christian? Is it too late? No. You can know today by looking in his word and reading the promises of a loving God. He calls you to himself. Are you willing to take the call? And if you're willing to take that call, rest assured, the promise is from him, not me. It's not from anybody in this church. The promise is solely from God himself. And that's why Jesus Christ came the way he did. As a humble baby. Everybody wanted the pomp and circumstances. That's why Israel rejected him. They wanted him to ride in on a white charger and take over and put his enemies out. Who wouldn't want that? But we would just be getting a free ride. Now Jesus offered the humble death of himself on the cross. And he simply says, this is a free gift. You can't work for it. You can't give enough for it. You simply say, yes, Lord, and you accept it. And from that moment on, for eternity, you will ever be with Christ. I trust this morning that that is the joy of your heart. And that is really the desire of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the tremendous things that you do in and through. There's so many of us here, Lord, struggling with, with problems and issues, and we try to handle things on our own accord. But clearly, Lord, you are the only one that can handle them. And so I pray this morning now that you would just simply 
draws to you. If we are Christians in need of reminding ourselves that you are our Savior, and once again, just commit to give ourselves back to you. Or if we're here, we've never trusted you as personal Savior. I pray that you would draw us to you in a mighty way that today would be the day of salvation. And so I thank and praise you for what you're going to do. For it's in Christ's precious name I ask. Amen. God bless.